Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. I think that was the moment for me as a, I just graduated from college. I didn't have a job. I was full of ideals. I just finished touring the country with a band for a year. And then I saw what a dream really cost and and I go back and, I, and I'm sort of remembering all these um, things that I had learned with difficulty. Like when my dad tried to teach me the guitar, I got really mad. I was like, a, I kept quitting. I tried to play guitar probably six different times over the course of six months and I kept quitting. And I said, this, this isn't fun. I can't, I can't solo. I can't do this. I can't do that. He, and he said, well, first, you, if you want to do this when it's fun, you have to first do it when it's not fun. And... And when you play guitar, it hurts really bad for several months until you build up um, these uh, calluses. And then it doesn't hurt anymore and it becomes fun. And, but it's not fun until you do this painful work that builds up this resilience in you that now you can show up and do the work and it's not painful anymore. And that was a lesson that I feel like I was continually learning, particularly from my dad, because he was always doing manual labor, which is like by definition kind of painful. And I realized if you keep showing up, the pain of showing up, at least for me in my experience, it doesn't hurt anymore. Somebody asked me today over lunch, like, what's it like to get writer's block? I was like, step one, don't believe such a thing exists. You know, step two, when you get stuck, keep going. And I, like I said, I learned that. I saw that growing up. I learned it later. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a It's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Jeff, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Hey, Srini. Good to be with you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. You know, so I, uh, you know, have known uh, about your work for quite some time. We had you, you know, here uh, back in the days when we were called Blogcast FM. And, uh, you know, you yeah. recently had a new book come out called Real Artists Don't Starve, which I, I thought the, the topic would be incredibly uh, relevant and resonant to the people who are listening. But before we get into that, um, I want to start by asking you, where did you grow up and what impact did where you're from end up having on your life and the career path that you've chosen? I love this question. I love all the stories on this podcast. I'm sort of a, a you know, nerdish fan about about this. So I'm honored <laughs> to be here. <laughs> I grew up in a town called Waterman, Illinois, which had a population of about 1,100 people. It was in northern Illinois, about an hour outside of Chicago, uh, surrounded by cornfields uh, near DeKalb, which is um, fairly well known. DeKalb County is is um, known for like DeKalb genetics and all this uh, 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 corn that they produce. 
And so I grew up surrounded by cornfields and um, my uh, dad kind of had a bunch of different blue collar jobs from like car salesman to handyman to uh, hot dog cart vendor. But, you know, I I grew up in this lower middle class um, upbringing and, um, you know, kind of uh, just kind of had this ethos that if you were going to make your way in the world, I mean, you were going to have to work really hard and and earn it. And so um, I, I just kind of grew up with that idea. My dad was also uh, a guitarist. He was uh, an artist himself. And he was in a bunch of bands when he was a kid. And he had this really cool almost sleeve tattoo, you know, this big tattoo covering um, you know, half of his arm of a wizard, <laughs> you know, like back in the days when he was a rocker. And he told me stories about hanging out with uh, Neil Young and Bob Dylan. And I just thought my dad was like the coolest guy in the world. And um, he was probably the first person who taught me how to be creative or just kind of gave me permission to do that. Um, played guitar every night for me and eventually my siblings. I'm the oldest of four kids. And, um, yeah, I mean, it was, it was, uh, it was an interesting, uh, life. And I, um, was told by my dad and by my mom as well, um, that if I wanted to succeed in life, I was going to have to go to college. And my dad had never gone to college. And like I said, he worked a bunch of blue collar jobs and he had consistently, lost jobs or missed promotions and gotten passed over by his peers and colleagues who are often younger than him precisely because he didn't have a college degree. And so he goes, look, I know it's a piece of paper, but it's a really important piece of paper. So you need to go to college. Uh, At the same time, we didn't have any money for that. I couldn't afford to do that. And so uh, I had to earn it by getting good grades and applying for grants and scholarships. and, And so that's what I did. I eventually, you know, left home at 18 and went to a small liberal arts college in central Illinois and, you know, kind of began that next chapter of my life. Hmm. Um, what did, uh, being in such a small town teach you about, uh, relationship dynamics and human behavior? Um, I don't know. <laughs> you know, it's like that story about the two fish, you know, two young fish in the water and the older fish comes along and says, hey, boys, how's the water? And they go, what the hell is water? <laughs> uh, you know, like you don't you don't know what you're in. Yeah. Um, I always felt like an outsider in in Waterman. Uh-huh. I, I didn't grow up there. And if you know anybody who's from a small town, like if you don't grow up there if you're not born there you're kind of an outsider and and that's how i felt because i had come kind of from the city from the suburbs and that's where my parents were from and so we moved into town when i was at the end of fourth grade and i remember my parents thinking we'll move in the middle of the school year so that you can like meet some friends and then like as opposed to moving in the middle of summer and not have anybody to hang out with which kind of worked it kind of worked but we like we moved to that town um, halfway through like the last quarter of the year. So I had like, I don't know, a few weeks I met these kids and then it was summer break. And I, you know, I think I had, you know, a couple of friends that I rode bikes with or whatever. Um, but for the most part, I grew up being the chubby, unpopular kid who was 
smart enough to not be cool, if you know what I mean. Like I was too smart to hang out with the popular kids. Um, and, and I wasn't smart enough. Like I was the, like this, the smartest kid there. And for me, um, and I think I've just like in my thirties now becoming more self-aware, I look back and begin to understand how these things kind of shaped me. Mm. Uh, but for me, like the goal was mostly to just kind of keep my head down. And, and I mean that somewhat literally when I was in high school, I was this short, chubby kid. Uh, I had long hair for a long time and people often mistook me for a girl because I, especially in middle school, had like, hadn't really gotten into puberty yet and I had long hair and I was chubby and more, you know, uh, baggy clothes. And I remember like freshman year in high school, I would get caught uh, several times a, uh, a week. I'd get caught in this hallway by these upperclassmen, you know, juniors and seniors who were jocks. They were basketball players. And they would play this game called pinball where they would surround me and they would basically you know, push me around in a circle that I couldn't get out of until you know they got tired of it. I would, I would keep trying to break out of the circle and they'd keep catching me and kind of like shoving me back and forth um, you know, between each other. And so I just remember feeling like I just need to stay below the radar. I need to not get noticed um, because when I do that, bad things happen. You know, I get embarrassed. I, I get, you know, physically hurt. Um, I remember, uh, like, in eighth grade, we had just gotten the internet. We had gotten America, America Online, which sounds weird to even say <laughs> now, AOL. Mm-hmm. And I met this girl online and dated her for six months, only to find out that it was one of my friends punking me, <laughs> like, telling <laughs> Which like is like I'm laughing about it, but it was it was traumatic. Like I like here I here I was a nerd with other nerdy friends, right? And even the nerds are making fun of me. And um and that was eighth grade. And I and uh middle school was really rough for me. And then going into college or going to high school rather, um, like I wasn't friends with the popular kids, I wasn't friends with the nerds. It was sort of like a, a blank slate. And I was just like, dude, you got to keep your head down because, like, anytime you stick out, um, bad things, bad, embarrassing things happen, and 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 that's how I felt. And and yet, there was this strong desire in me to be noticed, to cr- be creative, and share those creations uh, with the world, and that created a lot of angst for me. Mm. Yeah, it, that's that's yeah, it, that's exactly what my thought was. Is is that you know your work really is so much about getting noticed now, um, which is sort of an interesting paradigm. Right. How did you resolve the angst, yeah. and how do other people resolve that kind of angst in their own lives? A turning point for me, or a turning point, was junior year. Uh, keep in mind, high school is just about me keeping my head down, right? Junior year, the most popular kid in our class, and one of the most popular kids in the school, a guy named Doug drops dead on the gym room floor one day during PE of a heart attack. And it's so sudden, so incredibly tragic. And it's in a small town where like bad things didn't really happen, right? Um, There was a total of about 300 kids in the school. And the last time a kid had died was like, you know, some drunk driving accident five or six years before. And, you know, so we had never, I had never experienced that. I literally had never experienced 
one of my friends or classmates dying, period. So, you know, it shook you up, shook everybody up. And I remember the day that happened, everybody got called into the gym uh, at the end of school and basically said, hey, this this happened. It, you know, if you need to see a counselor, you can go over there. You need to talk to somebody, go over there. And I, I remember there were basically three groups of people. One, there were these like goth, angsty kids who all wore black and pretended they didn't care about anything. I mean, they were happy. They were like, you know, because this kid was like a preppy, Abercrombie and Fitch uh, guy and really epitomized the popular crowd and the unpopular kids were like, yeah, whatever. And they weren't crying and weren't upset. And then there were all of his friends and the people who idolized him who were just, you know, completely destroyed. And then there was kind of everybody else, that, you know, which was like, what do I do with this? This is weird. I feel sad, but I didn't know this person very well. Uh, what do I do with that? And that was where I was. And uh, I remember how this group of people, you know, which were basically people I saw at school but never hung out with on the weekends. I'd go home every weekend and tell my mom, um, you know, I don't have any friends, uh, you know, like I'm just going to play guitar. You know, I don't I, like I don't I can't do anything because nobody asked me to do anything. And my mom was always like, if you want to if you want friends, be a friend. You know, she was always saying that to me. And I um, was hanging out with these people at school and and we were just talking about like, what do we do with this? And, and we just resolved that none of us wanted to go home and be alone, you know, all night with this. And so, um, we started going bowling and I can't remember exactly how it started, but I remember going to my parents going, Hey, can I have some money to go bowling? And, and you know, they knew this tragic thing had just happened. And so they're like, yeah, sure. Here, go, go bowling. And I remember going bowling two, three, sometimes four times a week. And this went on for weeks and then months. And then we go see movies and it was a different group of people, but I mean, we'd have 10, 20, 30 people. Um, just getting together, hanging out, friends of friends of friends. And I remember um, uh, at the end of junior year getting a phone call on a Friday afternoon, like as soon as I got home from somebody saying, hey, Jeff, what are we doing tonight? And I was like, I don't I don't know. Why? Should, how should I know? Uh, uh, you know, and then somebody else called and said, hey, what, what, are, what are the plans for tonight? And, and on and on it went. And I realized somehow – on uh, mistake, you know, or by chance, I had become this ringleader of this group of friends without even realizing it. Mm. And it taught me a few things. One, it taught me what my mom said, if you want a friend, be a friend, which I think there are some, you know, great implications um, for, you know, what I do now. Um, and uh, uh, two, you know, I think the best way to lead a tribe, you know, a group of people is to not do what so many people do, which is you know say, hey, here's my here's my talent, here's my passion, here's the thing that I want you to care about, but rather to look at things that are um, the problems and the things that are causing people to pain, they're hurting, and and for me it was the same stuff that was bothering me, and so I was going, hey, like you're lonely, I'm lonely, you're sad, I'm sad, uh, you don't know what to do with this, I don't know what to do with this, so let's go do something together and just be together and figure it out. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's odd to retell this story because you fast forward, um, you know, a decade or so, and I'm in the middle of a job that I'm sort of feeling bored with going, well, you know, what do I really want to do here? And, you know, that's kind of how it started me on this journey of becoming a writer. Wow. Cause it almost sounds like a real life version of the breakfast club. 
Yeah. Yeah. Minus like being really rich. (laughs) All those, all those kids were really loaded. Um, yeah, I, I, like, I think the best way to build a community is to be whatever it is you want from a community to be that to other people. You know, it's a whole Gandhi thing, which is almost a, you know, a cliche now. Just yeah. be the change you want to see. But I realized, I really did realize that, uh, that up to this moment, you know, so I'm 16, 17 years old, I felt like I was not in control of my life. And ironically, when something tragic like a classmate dying happened, I felt more in control of my reality than I ever had up to that point. Like I realized, okay, I cannot control when I live or die. Something terrible could happen. But everything else, like I get a say in this. And so I get to choose to I get to choose to create the person that I want to be. And after that happened, I, I became more social. I was a misanthrope, you know. I, I was this grunge music listening, uh, you know, flannel wearing kid who played guitar and just, you know, would be a wallflower at every school dance. Mm. I was very overweight. I started going for runs and I just started like recreating the person that I wanted to be, which is something that I continue to do today. But that was a lesson that I learned from that very tragic incident was we have more control over this than we realize. Wow. You know, the other thing that you brought up um, that I, I think is fascinating and, and uh, an important uh, thing to, to discuss is, is work ethic, right? You're, it seems to me that you were raised with this killer work ethic that came from you know, a father musician. I've seen it in you as a writer. And it's a pattern that I, I think I've seen very much across the board in people that I've interviewed, people that I've read about, people that I, I think that we kind of look at as successful. There's one pattern I see, and it's consistency. It's a consistency of work ethic. I mean, you and I started you know, um, blogs and our, our sort of online business around the same time and, and there are a lot of people who aren't around from you know when we started and you know the, the reason this is fresh on my mind is because I was writing about it I see a pattern in all those people that aren't around and it's inconsistency um, so I'm curious uh, one is the work ethic something that can be developed and learned later um, if you're not necessarily brought up with it the way you were and if so how I I don't think I grew up disciplined um, I think I grew up kind of lazy mm. and my dad was constantly demonstrating to me through his life what hard work looked like. And it took me until adulthood to really get it. You know, so I got to college, uh, graduate with a very practical degree and, uh, a double major in Spanish and religion. And, uh, then, you know, uh, tour the country, uh, in a band for a year and then moved down to Nashville, think I'm gonna get a job because I'm hot stuff, and uh, sleep on a friend's couch for seven months, working at a call center part-time, just trying to figure my life out and trying to make enough money to not look like a loser so that I can marry this girl that I'm dating at the time. And um, during that time, my dad ends up relocating uh, the family from Northern Illinois to Northern Alabama to start a restaurant. And I go down and visit him before I moved to Nashville. I go down and visit him and just to see what's going on. I'm like, you're starting a restaurant? What's going on here? And I, I mentioned earlier that he was a hot dog cart vendor at one point. And he would uh, work with this guy who owned all these different hot dog carts. And he would, um, you know, sell hot dogs at these like uh, county fairs and different, you know, local events. 
And so my dad does this enough time. He's always been a great cook that he decides I'm just going to start a restaurant and he's going to sell Chicago style uh, hot dogs and brats and pizzas in northern Alabama, which is where his family was originally from. Like his parents were born and raised there, but he was born and raised in Chicago. And I go down there and my dad had basically loaded up the truck. He had left my mom with the other kids to go start this business. And they were, he was basically going to start the business, buy a house, and then move everybody down there. And I go visit him in the middle of the summer in Alabama. And he tells me, like I get to see it, but he tells me what his day is, which is um, he wakes up every morning at about 6 a.m. And he um, uh, walks the main street, basically meeting all of the local uh, shopkeepers and, you know, basically introduces himself, says, here's what I'm doing. And I'm starting this restaurant because um, he knows intuitively, like if he's got a small restaurant in downtown Florence, Alabama, uh, who's going to come to that? But, you know, every day for lunch, but the people who work there. And so he's making relationships with all these people, you know, buying something here or there to, you know, demonstrate his patronage to them. And he does this for the first half of the day. Then he goes to the store and picks up supplies. And then he comes back to the restaurant at about six o'clock at night with all of his supplies. And he starts renovating it because the restaurant, the, the, the building, um, that he's renting is, um, you know, basically in terrible shape and he's got to renovate the whole thing by hand cause he was also worked in construction for a long time. And so he does this from about 6 PM till midnight, uh, drywall. He ends up, you know, building these concrete walls and, you know, all this different stuff, building benches and things. It's a really small hole on the wall place, but he renovates the whole thing to make it uh, an actual place that people will come and eat. And he does this for months and then he blows up an inflatable mattress, puts it on the floor, and goes to bed and sleeps, you know, in that place as the you know dust is settling. And he did this for months until finally some some cousins um, came by and checked, checked, heard that he was in town. He didn't even tell anybody he was in town. And they go, "Where are you stay? Where are you staying?" He says, "Well, I'm staying here." And they're like, "No, no, you need to come stay in. You know, we've got a, a cabin on the lake. This is a small place that we rent out. You can go stay there." And then he ends up, you know, staying there. Um, but I think that was the moment for me as a, I just graduated from college. I didn't have a job. I was full of ideals. I just finished touring the country with a band for a year. And then I saw what a dream really cost. And, and I go back and I, and I'm sort of remembering all these, um, things that I had learned with difficulty. Like when my dad tried to teach me the guitar, I got really mad. I was like, I, I kept quitting. I tried to play guitar probably six different times over the course of six months and I kept quitting. And I said, this, this isn't fun. I can't, I can't solo. I can't do this. I can't do that. He, and he said, well, first, you, if you want to do this when it's fun, you have to first do it when it's not fun. And, and when you play guitar, it hurts really bad for several months until you build up um, these uh, calluses and then it doesn't hurt anymore and it becomes fun. And, but it's not fun until you do this painful work that builds up this resilience in you that now you can show up and do the work and it's not painful anymore. And that was a lesson that I feel like I was continually learning, particularly from my dad, because he was always doing manual labor, which is like by definition kind of painful. And I realized if you keep showing up, the pain of showing up, at least for me in my experience, it doesn't hurt anymore. Somebody asked me today over lunch, like, what's it like to get writer's block? I was like, step one, don't believe such a thing exists. You know, step two, when you get stuck, keep going. And I 
like I said, I learned that. I saw that growing up. I learned it later. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Well, let's do this. Um, let's get into the entire sort of idea uh, and framework of the notion that real artists don't starve. And where I want to start is, you know, where what planted the seed for this idea in particular for a book? Like what prompted your exploration of this? Well, like you, I like stories. And a few years ago now, a friend sent me an article after he had gotten back from a trip to Florence, Italy. And the article was about some professor's discovery 
that the artist Michelangelo had over $50 million to his name when he died. And my friend was like, did you know this? And I was like, no. He's like, well, we were just on a tour and this tour guide was telling us in Florence, like that house belonged to Michelangelo and that house belonged to him. And my friend is like, wait, what? Michelangelo was rich? And, and then he finds this article and he sends it to me. And I just was always fascinated with that. And it was uh, a gnawing idea. This is my fifth book. And I typically write books, not because I figured something out, but because I want to figure something out. And I hear something, I see something, and I just keep seeing it pop up, right? Like you, I don't know, you never, never drive a Prius, you know, then you buy a Prius and you see them everywhere, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what was happening is I kept running into people going, Hey, you know, did you know that Michelangelo was the richest artist who ever lived? And, um, or, you know, the richest artist of his time. And they're like, no, I didn't know that. And I just, there's something to me about that that was really interesting. And I've been fascinated in many ways that I think you have Srini, um, with this dance between art in commerce. Mm-hmm. On one hand, I agree with Seth Godin. Art is a gift that you need to give to the world without expectation of reciprocity. On the other hand, nobody wants to starve. And living in Nashville, I just have an opportunity to have a lot of conversations with people somewhat organically with songwriters and musicians and authors and you know this new category of creative entrepreneur. And I saw uh, much like you've seen with successful people, there was sort of this commonality that I kept running into, and it was mindset. The people who were successful artists, and I use that term loosely, you know, whether that means they're running a business, um, you know, doing marketing or writing books, um, they had a certain mindset, and and it was like they weren't particularly precious about their art. Their skill was high; they were doing great work. But they also understood that like this was work, this was a job, and they had some business acumen. And then the people who were starving, meaning they were, uh, this is very common in Nashville. You know, you'll tour 200 dates a year, mm-hmm. and you know, your that income means you're below the poverty line, and then you're supplementing that income, you know, waiting tables or whatever, or doing retail in the off season. And so you're not making a full time living off of your art, and it's costing you a lot of time and energy. And they had a different mindset, which was basically, you can't make any money doing that. I mean, I could like from the the what I call a thriving artist, yeah. you know, they were killing it. And I was like, hey, can you make a living off of art? They're like, yeah, totally, I have. And then, and then the starving artists are like, no, there's just no money in it. Like, unless you're one of those lucky people, unless you're Michael Jackson or Justin Bieber or something, uh, there's just no money in it. I was like, this is weird. Like, there's two very different groups of people who are doing the same thing with the same level of skill. And I'm not talking about rock stars. I know plenty of people who are doing really well mm-hmm. that aren't superstars, they're not famous. And the mindsets were very, very different. And so I started this book with the idea. What if being a starving artist is a choice? It's a mindset today, not some necessary condition of doing creative work. Wow. You know, I think the thing that really struck me uh, about what you said uh, was that you, you know, you, you thriving artists describe what they do as a job. Uh, which is, is really interesting because it kind of you know, takes you into that whole Stephen Pressfield uh, thing. The difference between amateurs and professionals is in their habits. Uh, like you don't wake up and think, OK, I, I get to do this sort of, you know, free wheeling thing. Like I realized the moment that I got to write a book with a publisher, I was like, wow, this has turned into a job all of a sudden. And it requires the <laughs> same sort of discipline and commitment that actually having a job would. And the weirder thing yeah. is you need that before you even have the job. 
That's true. Yeah, I love Stephen Pressfield. And the biggest takeaway that I ever got from him when I started writing was that you turn pro first in your head before you do it on paper. Mm-hmm. I, I asked him one time uh, early on, you know, I started my blog and, you know, when you're, you're starting out, you're like, I'm going to ask other people for advice, you know, and and I inter- I was able to interview him on my blog probably six months into it. And I said, when does a writer get to call himself a writer? Like I, I, did, I truly didn't know. Because it, it is one of those kind of nebulous things. And, you know, talk to people. I've talked to people who go, you can't call yourself a writer until you've written at least two, if not three books. And then there are other people who have written like 50 books. And like, I still don't call myself a writer. And I'm like, this is a weird thing. Like, you should be able to call yourself your job title. Yeah. And so I really want to know. Like, I didn't want to be a fake. I didn't want to be an amateur. I said, Steve, when do you get, get to call yourself a writer? He said this. He said, you are when you say you are. He said, forget what everybody else says. You are when you say you are. And I mean, that kind of runs the risk, presents the chance that you could, you know, be a fake it till you make it kind of person, which I don't actually agree with. Mm -hmm. But I do believe that in order for us to turn pro, it's a decision. And I remember, I remember the day that I turned pro. It was uh, after a bunch of different conversations and I, a friend asked me what my dream was and I was working at this point as a full-time marketing director uh, in my late 20s working for a nonprofit in a very comfortable, secure job where my boss gave me a raise and more responsibility every year and I was bored. And I knew it wasn't a horrible experience. I didn't have to get out of there, which was scary because I knew I could coast for the next 10 years and I didn't want to do that. And at the same time, I knew there was something else, something that I was supposed to be doing, almost like a calling. And I didn't like I didn't know what it was. And a friend asked me what my dream was. And I said, I don't know. I don't know that I have one of those. I was really scared to say anything because I don't want to be held accountable to it. And he looked at me. And he's like, that's so funny because I would have thought that you would have said writer. And as soon as he said that, I, I mean, I felt it. And I said, well, you know, I, I guess I'd like to be a writer someday. And he said, Jeff, you don't have to want to be a writer. You are a writer. You just need to write. And I was like, really? I can do that? <laughs> and the next day I got up and wrote about 500 words. And the day after that, I did it again. And I did it every single day uh, for a year. And I was like, okay, I really want to do this. And I need, I keep waiting for something to happen before I start taking this seriously. I keep thinking that if I um, get a book deal or get 10,000 subscribers, then I'll start calling myself a writer. And I realized it's the other way around. That activity sometimes follows identity. That before you can go do something, you have to become someone. So I decided that day after that conversation with my friend, not I'm going to be, not someday. I said, I am a writer. And what do writers do? I think they get up every day and write. And so that's what I'm going to do. And so I, I learned from Steve and from my friend uh, that um, before you expect the world to take you seriously, first, you have to take yourself seriously. Mm, wow. Well, let's do this. I want to talk about um, how somebody makes the mindsets, mindset shift from starving artist to thriving artist. Like what is the framework for making this happen? Yeah. Uh, the framework is first you have to believe it, mm-hmm. uh, which I mentioned. So I start call, like I, 
actually started calling myself a writer. People, I'd meet people at parties and meetups and things, and they'd go, what do you do? i go, I'm a writer. Which is a weird thing to say when like your nine-to-five job is marketing director. But I like every time I said that, oh, I, I work, you know, as as a marketing director, but I also do this thing and that it just didn't feel like who I was. When I said I'm a writer, people go, Wow. And and, and then of course the next thing they say is, Well, what do you write? <laughs> and I was like, Oh, hang on a second, I gotta go do something. You know, I mean, for me, it, it wasn't faking it till you make it, it was believing it till you become it. And so I was putting myself out there because it forced me to do the work every day. Because if I wasn't doing the work, I wasn't earning it. I like what Derek Sivers says about this. Uh, he says um, that you lose your title if you don't keep earning it. Like he stopped calling himself an entrepreneur because he doesn't, you know, launch businesses anymore. So like you can't keep calling, can't, can't keep calling yourself a fisherman if you haven't fished for the past 20 years. And so I was like, okay, I'm doing the work every single day. So I'm, I'm earning the title. So I think you believe it. Even if you have to sort of trick your mind into it, it's an act of faith. I want this, and so I'm going to assume this identity. That's step one, as it were. Mm-hmm. Step two, I think, is to behave like it. So when I share this advice, I was telling um, uh, Ryan Holiday about this, and he's like, you don't think you can just like call yourself a writer and then you're a writer, right? I was like, I think that's where you begin, because that's where we all have to begin, yeah. um, is with faith that it's at least possible but if you're saying it, not doing it, then yeah, you're a pretender. You're an amateur. Um, but for me, that's just where you have to begin. So you believe and then you behave like it. You act as if it's true until it becomes true. And so for me, the framework is believe, behave, become. Don't fake it till you make it. Believe it till you become it. Mm. Okay. So we've talked about mindset. Let's talk about practical application because I know you talk quite a bit about that in the book um, in terms of patronage, in terms of, of reality. I mean, I think that there's another sort of interesting narrative in that, you know, you mentioned the Seth Godin thing. I think there's this sort of almost strange sort of thought of, oh, if we sell something or we start making money off of our art, it's lost its purity and we've sold out, right? That whole sellout idea. Um, and I'm curious right. what you have to say about that. I mean, you know, we just launched a, a product and it took me a really long time to be okay. Okay with with doing it um, yeah. so I'm, I'm curious you know yeah. why you think that is like what kind of shift does somebody have to make for their, them to be okay with that in the book i talk about the myth of the starving artist um which is um a, a story that we tell ourselves myths are stories that we tell ourselves to make sense of the world around us around us so uh and they could be true or not true so there are religious myths there are historical myths um you know there are patriotic myths and there are things there are stories that we tell ourselves and our children to explain the way things are right and and they can be good or or not good and the myth of the starving artist is a story that we tell ourselves to help us make sense of why sometimes it can be so difficult to make money off of art which is something that I, you know, I think we all recognize and feel, and every creative person I know, I mean, they really feel like it's really difficult, and and I get that, and and, and the myth of the starving artist says, well, money and art don't belong together, and if you believe that story, it has an odd way of coming true. <laughs> I mean, every starving artist I've ever met never said, you know, like, oh, this is just a job and it's a business, and you know, I'm going to figure it out. Like, it was almost always hat in hand. Um, apologetic, like nobody wants this thing, so why should I even bother? But it's my passion, kind of thing. It was there was there was some romance in the suffering of you know the artist, yeah. and that is very much 
um, reminiscent of the whole starving artist culture that began in the romantic era in the mid 1800s and, you know, kind of carries on up to the present. Uh, it is no longer necessary. And I think more and more we're seeing creative people succeed, um, today. And, and so, you know, we have to kind of begin there realizing whatever story we tell ourselves, uh, has a way of coming true. Uh, so, like how this practically um, works for us today and how we begin to give ourselves permission to make money off of our art. First of all, I, I don't think once you make money off of your uh, gift that it ceases to be a gift. I like what Seth says about this and he's borrowing a lot of ideas from Lewis Hyde who's brilliant on this. Lewis Hyde wrote a great book called The Gift if yeah. you're unfamiliar with it. And he basically says this. He says art exists in two economies – uh, the gift exchange economy where I give you a gift and you give me a gift, but we ne we're never doing tit for tat. Like we're never exchanging gifts. I'm giving to you and you're giving to me. And if at any point one of us stops giving, the system stops working, but we're not, we're not exchanging things in the same way that the market economy, which is the second economy, works where I give you something and you give me something back, right? Yeah. I give you a good and, and you give me a coin or whatever. And he says art exists in both of those economies, and that's why we feel this angst. And I think that makes a lot of sense. And so if it exists, you know, if it's sort of a Venn diagram, you've got art and no money, and then you've got money and no art, and then there's art and money in between, uh, there seems to me to be a spectrum where on one hand – you can kind of feel like a sellout where you were doing things just for their commercial appeal, yeah. which I think is my definition of sellout. You're yeah. pandering. And I think that's somewhat of a subjective call, but I think you have to have your sort of own internal values. And I certainly have those where I go, I'm not doing anything interesting or fun or creative. And it feels kind of like I'm selling out, like I'm doing it just for the money. Yeah. And then on the other extreme would be starving. Right, I'm doing very interesting work, but nobody notices. There's no commercial value to it, and 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 therefore it doesn't really have the impact that I wanted it to have. And I think within that, you know, center of the Venn diagram, there's an opportunity to make interesting stuff and make uh, a living without starving or selling out. And ultimately, I think it comes down to you deciding how that works for you. Mm. But I have certainly not experienced making money off of sharing my gift, whatever that means, um, in a way where people were paying me for it. But, uh, but I like what, what, what Seth says about this, where he says, you cannot sort of open a storefront and say, here's my art, you know, like pay me for it. Um, like you need to start with a generosity mentality. And as you give, 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 right. you, you will eventually create so much demand that people go, here, let me pay you for this, which sounds absurd, right? Like it sounds like there should be something more practical to it than that. Uh -huh. And I think there's some practicalities to it. But I actually experienced this exactly like this. I had this conversation with my friend. He says, you are a writer. I go, okay, I'm going to write. I start a blog. I start blogging every single day for a year, 365 days. This is in 2011. Um, and by the end of 2011, I have written 400 articles in 365 days, all of which were free and I gave away on the internet. I have written like two or three eBooks, done uh, half a dozen free webinars. Like I am giving away so much stuff. 
with the vague idea that if I build an audience, like somehow it will be worth it. Like I don't have a business strategy. I'm having a lot of fun. I'm seeing momentum and I'm just trusting that I can do something with this. And what happens by the end of 2011, Srini, is almost on a daily basis, I start getting emails from my subscribers, which is over 10,000 people at this point. And somebody will email me and go, hey, great article. Appreciate this video you did over here. Thanks for that thing over there. Now, can I pay you for something? And people, like on a consistent basis, three to five times a week, were saying, "Can I buy something?" Yeah. And I was like, "No, I, I, I better go do that, huh?" Mm. So it really does. I, it it does work if you begin and end with the understanding that this is a gift, and there are some gifts that people never pay you for, and there are other gifts that people will you know, line up and, and give you lots of money for. And it's not your job necessarily to determine the value of the gift. It's your job to keep making your art and and getting it. Yeah. Wow. Um, I, I want to talk about one last piece of this. Um, and it, it's in reference to a piece that I saw you uh, publish on Medium titled Your Creative Work Needs an Audience. Because I think that there is also what I've seen often is the sort of, you know, purists are like, oh, you know, I don't want to market myself. I don't want to do all this stuff. I just want, you know, create this amazing stuff in, vac- in a vacuum and hope that people find it, uh, which I think you and I both know is not, not really true um, and just not realistically the way the world works. Um, so I, I'm curious what you have to say. Uh, and you know, if you could expand on that idea of your creative work, creative work needing an audience. Yeah, I think art needs an audience. And um, there was an author, a woman by the name of George Sand, who was um, a French author in the 19th century, I believe. And she talks about that. She basically says that creative work, art that does not find an audience, isn't really art at all. I think that if you go, I just want to make my art. And I, and, and I just want to create for the sake of creating, and I don't care if anybody looks at it, buys it, whatever, I think that's fine. I am not knocking that. But that is not what I believe most artists want. I believe most artists want to create their work, and they don't want to have to do the work of marketing it, understanding the business model for it, understanding uh, the needs of the industry that they're in, understanding anything other than what happens in their studio, and yet they expect people to still pay attention to it. I remember speaking at a conference one time, and uh, somebody raised their hand during a Q&A session at the end of my talk, and we were talking about social media and blogging, and it was a, an audience of writers and bloggers, and this person said, yeah, I don't want to do social media because it's narcissistic. I was like, yeah, I get that. You know, it's all about me. I, I totally get that. <laughs> yeah. um, I said, so let me understand. What do you, what you want to do is you just want to write? She's like, yeah, yeah that's what I want to do. Uh, I said, okay. But like you, you like want to write books and stuff? Yeah, I want to write this memoir, da, da, da. Um, and you um, want people to like buy your books, right? Well, of course, yeah, definitely need, need that to happen. I said, okay. So, so just to be clear, um, you don't want to do social media you want to write, you don't want to do any of the work you need to do to actually earn the attention of an audience so that you can sell them things or just let like have know that they're going to read your stuff uh, and, and you expect them to buy your books um, just because you're great. Uh, and you think going on Twitter or Facebook is somehow more narcissistic than the expectation that I can just do my work and people should pay attention to it for the sake of me being awesome. Like, which is more narcissistic? Yeah. I, I just think you have, we have to like reframe what we, the way we think about these things. And 
uh, I love, you know, when Austin Kleon talks about show your work, uh-huh. the best way for an artist to demonstrate what they do, you do this really well. You know, I, I remember when you started writing these, like, this was before this was kind of a thing where people were, <laughs> were, 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 you would just like write like a blog post on Facebook. And I'm uh-huh. like, why is this on his blog? You know, and it was just like this thing that you were learning about. Yeah. And if I remember correctly, there was a time where you were doing this almost daily, you yeah. know, it's fascinating. That, that, that became the foundation for my, my first self-published book, which became a Wall Street Journal yeah. seller. So, so yeah. Uh, yeah. So I call that practicing in public. Yeah. And I think it's the best way to build an audience around your art. Because what you're doing is, I mean, you're jamming, you're writing about stuff that you're learning about. Yeah. Uh, it feels fresh. It's exciting. It's not, it doesn't feel like work necessarily. It's a little bit scary because you're exposing yourself, at least maybe the first time you did it. And then people are paying attention. They're seeing you work. They're watching you get better. And, and over time, uh, you know, y- you get better, which is obviously the benefit of practice. But then you also have this audience who goes, OK, what's next? Oh, it's a book this time. OK, great. We'll get that. It's a webinar. It's a course. Great. We'll get that, too. And versus just thinking it's like a marketing strategy. And I think at its core, all art wants to be seen, wants to be experienced by somebody. I don't think you have to monetize every little thing that you do. But if you've got this thing, as I imagine and, and talk to so many creative people who do this thing that you want to get out into the world, this idea, whatever it is, and, and you're thinking, well, nobody cares about this or I could never make any money off of this. I just want you to suspend that idea for a moment and believe that there's somebody else out in the world who needs that thing. Maybe it's just one other person. Like, let's not get too crazy about this. I'm not talking about making a million dollars. Don't you want to reach that person? Don't you want them to experience this message or this idea or this thing that you have created or will create? That should be exciting. And and that should be something that you orient your choices around and go, I'm going to do what it takes. I'm going to learn the skills that I need to learn. You don't have to go get your MBA to have basic business skills to succeed as a creative person, as an artist today. But I think you should be a little bit hungry. You should be a little bit driven about getting this art in front of the audience it was intended for. Mm, wow. I think that makes a, a really sort of fitting end to our uh, conversation. I want to finish with one final question, which I am sure you've heard me ask, uh, and it's how we finish all of our interviews at The Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Somebody once described the idea of a calling, a vocation, the work that you're meant to do as that thing that you can't not do. And and so I think what makes a person's work unmistakable is when they're operating in that zone of genius. And I don't know. For me, writing is a compulsion. I remember the other day um, I was leading a workshop, which is fun. And I came home from that. And I don't know if you ever experienced this, Serena, being at an event, speaking or whatever, being surrounded by a bunch of people. And then coming back from that and and there's just kind of this crash. You know, I've been surrounded (laughs) surrounded by people. It's a crash. And, and I, I realized what I feel right now is, is lonely. I feel lonely right now. I was around people all day. Now I'm not. I feel off. Something feels off in me. And I, I don't quite understand how it is. And my, I, I, we've got two kids. I'm married. Uh, but it, we had just put them to bed. My wife was, was working. She's got a business. And so I was just sitting in the kitchen by myself <laughs> at 8 o'clock at night going, 
what is this feeling, you know? And I just sat with it for a moment. I was like, okay. And I opened up the laptop. I just started writing. And I, and I remembered, like, this is what I've always done. Elizabeth Gilbert describes writing as her home, not as necessarily the place that you come from, but the thing that you always return to. When you find that thing, that thing that you can't not do, for me, it's writing. It's just, I don't feel right until I, until I sit down and write just a little bit every day. Or if something's off, I don't understand how I feel about something. I don't know what I know about something. I sit down and I write. And, and I, I do that for me. I don't do that because it pays the bills. There are all these great little byproducts that come from it. I'm aware of you know the marketing and the business and all of that stuff. But at the end of the day, I do this work because I because I can't not do it. It's a compulsion. I have to do it, uh, and I mean that in the best possible way. Not like some drudge work where you go, oh, I got to do this, but I don't really want to do it. When I don't do this, I don't feel like I am fully myself. And I think when we understand who we are, our best, most unmistakable work comes from that place of identity. Mm, wow. Well, uh, this has been absolutely fabulous. Uh, can you tell people where they can find out more about your work and uh, the book? Sure. Thanks for having me. Um, I love these conversations. Can't believe I told you all that stuff about my childhood. <laughs> <laughs> I've been known to do that to people. <laughs> well, it was just one question. Why'd I go there? Uh, you can go to my blog, which is just my last name, Goinswriter, G-O-I-N-S, writer.com. Uh, you can find out more about the book, Real Artists Don't Starve, there. If you do pick up a copy, there's some bonuses that you can get. You can learn out about all that at my website, Goinswriter.com. Cool. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. 
Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.